When we read God's word, there is something that we must understand about this word, and that, that is that God's word is, for each and every one of us, in every single way, as inflexible as iron. God's word cannot be bent, cannot be shaped to fit your passions, your pleasures, your desires, and your pursuits. We are the ones who are called to commit ourselves to, to submit ourselves to, to conform ourselves to this perfect standard of God that is revealed here in the pages of this book. We strive to conform every aspect of our lives to God's inflexible word. In all of our thoughts, in all of our deeds, and in all of our words, God's revelation in Scripture stands above us. And what does it do as it stands above us? It reveals to us our complete and total ineptitude. It reveals to us the impossibility of any of us being a good person before the Lord. It displays to us that not one, not a single person, aside from Jesus Christ himself, can ever stand before God and say, I have done everything you have said to do in this book. In fact, when we read our text just a few minutes ago, you might have noticed that Jesus made this absolutely clear to everyone who was listening to him on this day in verse 48. You must be, what? Perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. So then the question arises, how does one achieve or attain this perfection when it's so obviously apparent to each and every one of us if we are honest with ourselves that no one can measure up to God's inflexible, righteous, and perfect demands? The answer is clear in the same scripture. Thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ who met the demand for us, who lived the perfect life that you and I require, who paid the penalty for our sin, for the sins of everyone, every man, woman, child who's ever lived, who trusts in him, the penalty for their sin has been paid as they and when they believe in him. But it doesn't end there because everyone who places their trust in the glorious and wonderful and exalted Lord Jesus Christ, when we believe in them, he gifts to us the perfect righteousness that we need. Scripture uses the analogy of clothing. Those who trust in Christ are clothed with his righteousness, his perfect righteousness. And so when the Father looks at us based on Christ's work, not our own, what does he see? You who are perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's not based on anything you have done. It's not based on anything I have done, but completely and totally in every facet based on what Christ has done. But this, might, this means, however, that we must accept a difficult truth. That you and I are rotten sinners who actually require this righteousness of Christ. And this kicks against every single instinct and impulse in us, doesn't it? Because we don't want to think of ourselves, I don't know, maybe you're different than I am, we don't want to think of ourselves as dirty, rotten sinners, do we? That's not how we want to think about who we are. We don't want to think about ourselves in those terms. We want to think highly of ourselves. We want to think that we are pretty good people. We want to follow the cultural dictates to love ourselves and highly esteem ourselves and think that somehow, someway, God loves us and is, has a good disposition towards us because we are basically good people. And all of this arises because we refuse to recognize our absolute wretchedness before God. Because we want to see ourselves in the best possible light, but also we want to convince others to see us in the best possible light as well. And so, 
Because many most refuse to see their wretchedness, wretchedness before God, they do one of two things. They either just plain outright refuse to trust Christ, or they try to shape and craft a Christianity that lets me have Jesus, along with a high and lofty view of myself, And so instead of seeing God's word as some inflexible iron that stands above us, we see God's word as a nice lump of Play-Doh. A nice lump of Play-Doh. We like to hold to a more malleable, shapeable view of God's word, don't we? For many... God's word is more like Play-Doh than it is iron. And this is the problem that the rabbis and the scribes that Jesus is talking about in this text this morning had. They treated God's word as though it were Play-Doh while paying lip service to it like it was iron. And they convinced themselves and they convinced others that they thought of it as inflexible, but all the while they shaped it and molded it and crafted it to fit their own lifestyles. And it was this practice of shaping God's word in such a way that it didn't, that it couldn't perform its function of revealing our total sinfulness before God that Jesus has been correcting in the last few sections that we've covered in this Sermon on the Mount. In all of these, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus is correcting the Pharisees' understanding of the word, of God's word as merely Plato to be shaped according to their fancy. And he also corrects us as well because there are many in our day who claim to love and who claim to serve Jesus who act in ways that are virtually indistinguishable from the Pharisees in reference to God's word. When it comes to God's word, there are so many of us who would rather than submitting to God's word, rather than recognizing that God's standard is one of absolute perfection, Engage in what we like to call Play-Doh gymnastics. Twisting and shaping God's word into unrecognizable shapes. Shaping it to fit my own desires. Making it say what I want it to say. Making it say what culture wants it to say in order for me not to get the trouble from the culture. And the reason for this is always the same. We want to think we're good before God. We want to live life on our own terms. But we also want to have some sort of confidence that we can go off into the next life and everything will be fine. Let me just make something clear. Scripture does not allow us to hold to this mentality. This tendency to contort or shift or change God's perfect authoritative word to fit or permit our passions, our wants, our fleshly desires is to commit a terrible sin. God's word is inflexible like iron, not shapeable like Play-Doh. So then the question is, how did, God's, how did the Pharisees treat God's word like Play-Doh? Jesus reveals this in six rabbinic misinterpretations of God's word. He reveals it in six misinterpretations of the rabbis who took God's word, who took the laws that God had revealed to Israel, five of which we've already covered and one we will look at this morning. These six corrections, they don't make up an exhaustive list of the interpretive errors of the rabbis. Had Jesus wanted to, he could have compared and contrasted the list of teaching that the rabbis had gotten wrong with with God's intention in his word. He could have done that for days. But these six examples, as we've read in Matthew chapter 5, they are sufficient to prove the point. Instead of letting the law reveal to the scribes and Pharisees that they were sinners who required the grace of God, they interpreted the laws of God in ways that made them think, I'm pretty good before God. I'm a pretty good person. God must love me because I'm so good. And let me just tell you, Scripture always reveals that to be a dangerous position. Only in Christ 
can a person be considered good before God. Only in Christ can a person be considered good in the eyes of God. And again, it's not because of anything we've done. It's because of what Christ has done. And so just a quick recap of the examples that Christ has set forth as examples of the Pharisees' play-doing of Scripture. So if you remember, you go back to chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, uh, and the discussion on murder. The Pharisees assumed and interpreted this command to simply refer to the act of murder itself as though God's law here had nothing to say to the human heart. They interpreted this law in this way simply as the act of murder itself for two reasons. One, so they could feel good about their standing before God, so that they could say, hey, you know what? I haven't murdered anyone. I'm a pretty good person. God must love me as a result. And two, the second reason is so they might amplify their righteousness or supposed righteousness in the eyes of others. Hey, everyone, look at me. Look how holy I am. Look how obedient to God's word I am. I haven't murdered anyone. But God's word, this command was intended to penetrate the human heart. It was, it was intended to go so much deeper than the simple act of murder itself. It was intended to sink in and cause the hearer to address and to identify the state of their own heart and as a result of what they found there, to root out and destroy all hostility, all animosity, all bitterness that they had held on to against their fellow countrymen. Jesus revealed that the law against murder also meant that even the maintaining or, maintaining or resting in a disposition of anger toward another person, toward another believer, is as liable to the judgment of God, as liable to the hell of fire, he says, as the act of murder itself. But the scribes and Pharisees, they didn't want to hear all that noise. They didn't want to do the heavy lifting of having to deal with the anger that had been lodged in their heart. So they simply made the command about the act of murder. They used and viewed God's word as though it were Plato and shaped it in accordance with their preference. In this way for them, they left heart searching off the list. God's word was for them nothing more than Plato to be shaped as they saw fit. But it didn't end there. In the next section, Jesus refers to adultery. And they did the same thing with the command not to commit adultery, as we see in chapter 5, verse 27 to 30. Once again, they completely bypassed the heart and focused on the act itself. When God gave the command not to commit adultery, it was a prohibition against much more than the simple act of adultery itself, which, while dreadfully sinful, isn't the entirety of the problem. It is the fruit of a root. Again, the heart must be addressed. God's people must hear God's commands as addressing both their deeds and their heart and work on rooting out those passions from their heart. It wasn't and it isn't permissible to simply avoid committing the act of physical adultery all the while looking at lustful intent with everyone around you at everyone around you. The Pharisees and the scribes, again, they didn't want to hear all of that because it meant that their righteousness before God wasn't as secure as they assumed it to be. And they wanted to stand before people and declare, hey, I've never committed adultery. Do you see how holy I am? While all the while, in their minds, they were continually committing adultery in their hearts. God's word was for them, in this instance, nothing more than Plato to be shaped according to their preferences. We go on and we see in 531 to 32, he starts talking about marriage there. Again, they shaped God's word to fit their preferences and they did not want to occupy themselves with the difficult work of growing and maintaining a healthy marriage. If you're married in here, you know how difficult it is to grow and maintain a healthy marriage. It takes a lot of work, doesn't it? Yes. The Pharisees also had no desire to stay with their wives, 
when their eyes turned from their wives and set themselves on another woman. And so they twisted the words of the Lord beyond recognition once again and turned them into a permission and an encouragement to move on from their wives whenever they didn't like them anymore. But that wasn't God's intention. When God gave the law, he said, I've created male and female. Man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let man not separate. However, this didn't matter to the Pharisees because what they wanted is what they wanted and they would ensure that God's word was shifted, changed, crafted, and molded to suit what they wanted. And in this way, they paid lip service to God's word. But in practice, it was simply Plato that they fit to their inclinations. And then in the next section, you've got oaths. And here the rabbis cunningly created a system of truth-telling that permitted deception without consequence. Instead of addressing the necessity of telling the truth in the heart, or truthfulness in the heart, instead of encouraging a commitment to unvarnished and unabashed honesty... When you say yes, you mean yes, and when you say no, you mean no. Instead of following through on commitments that you've made and promises that you've sworn, which is what God intended by all of these laws that he gave in the Old Testament, the Pharisees engineered a complex system of oaths, some of which were binding, others not so much. And in doing so, they broke two commands. You shall not bear false witness, or you shall not lie, and you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Instead of recognizing that every word spoken by someone who claims to be one of the Lord's children is in fact an invocation of God's name with the same effect and force of an oath that, was, that is spoken specifically in his name, they simply pressed God's word as Plato and came out with the design that they wanted. They pressed it through one of those, you know, Play-Doh shapers and brought it out the way that they wanted it to look. And so they allowed themselves to continue fooling each other in this area of righteousness before God. And last week, we noted once again the same confusing craftiness, but this time in the area of vengeance against a brother. You see, the religious leaders, once again, they manhandled God's system of justice. They manhandled and mangled God's word. God placed in the hands of impartial judges and magistrates a centralized system of judgment, a system that restricted and restrained personal vengeance, taking revenge out of the hands of the one who was angry and placing it into the hands of impartial judges. And there was another, and they also ensured that the penalties fit the crime so that the person who was seeking vengeance at, by the, in the courts could not get more vengeance. They could not take two eyes if someone took one of theirs. And the religious leaders here, once again, they manipulated God's word, turning it into a command, turning it into a permission to seek personal vengeance upon those who harmed them. But Jesus here corrected their odd misshaping of God's word. Declaring to them that God's intention was never to permit or encourage personal vengeance against a brother. God's word never permits us to harbor any hatred or bitterness against a brother. Instead, we bless them. We do good to them. No matter who they are, no matter what they have done, if they are your fellow brother in the Lord or sister in the Lord, you bless them. And this morning, as we come to the final, you have heard it said, but I say to you statement, we are confronted with the most egregious example, the most obvious and outright example of altering the intention of God's word to fit a weakness of the flesh to maintain a sense of right standing before God that is nothing more than a sham. This was the righteousness of the Pharisees that Jesus was mentioning in verse 20, right? A righteousness secured by following the law. That is the righteousness of the Pharisees. A righteousness that Jesus reveals to be both an impossibility 
and an outright deception. It's an impossibility because in order to have any sense that one can actually follow the law, they have to change it, they have to reshape it, they have to align it with their own strengths and with their own desires. We must recognize and realize that supposed righteousness, when we feel like we are righteous because of something we've done, we must realize that that uh, righteousness that we assume we have falls infinitely short of the glory of God. Falls infinitely short of the inflexible, perfect standard of God. So what we all need is a righteousness, according to verse 20, that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, a righteousness that is of a radically different quality, a righteousness that recognizes that when we compare ourselves or measure ourselves up against God's actual word as intended by God to us, with no games and no deception, we are revealed as sinners. We are revealed as those with no hope of attaining any level of righteousness before God as a result of our own works. And this revelation, when it's accepted, ought to propel us to the only one who can solve this dilemma, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who, as we already said, forgives our sin and clothes us with the righteousness that we desire and sends the Holy Spirit to live in us so that we can begin to display the impossible characteristics of a true citizen in his kingdom. And nowhere is this display of the impossible shown more in our love, not for our friends, not for our families, not for our brothers and sisters, not for our children, but for our enemies. You see that in the text, right? Nowhere is the impossible demand made clearer than right here when Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Is this natural to anyone in here? So let's contrast what's happening here. Let's contrast the Pharisees' play-doing of God's word with what God actually required and requires of his truly righteous people. In verse 43, Jesus begins. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In that one rabbinical teaching, there are two grievous errors. There is one error by omission and one error by addition. So we're going to look at each of those in turn. The error of omission and the error of addition. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Is that it? Is that the command? No. There is a rather shifty omission that takes place here as we see in the, in the original context of Leviticus 19.18 which says this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice how that's missing. Now, just as an aside, I just want to step back and say, this is not a permission or a call to love yourself. Okay, I was listening to a band this week. I, I try to find different bands to listen to so that I can send them out on the Tuesday email, right? Like, oh, I found this great band, and so I'll listen to them a bunch of times, and I'll see it. And I found this one, and I'm like, these guys are fantastic. This is great stuff. They got great music. Their lyrics are pretty good. And then all of a sudden, I'm listening to the one song, and the lyric was, how can you learn to love other people if you can't love yourself? And I'm like, ah, oh, Delete. I'm very particular in the theology of songs, if you don't want to say. That is a devastatingly Play-Doh-ish understanding of God's word. To take this text and say to yourself, well, how can I learn to love others if I don't love myself? That's a cultural way of viewing this text. You need, and I need, no encouragement to love ourselves, to focus our thoughts on ourselves to focus our energy on ourselves. What we need is, and what we see all throughout Scripture, are encouragements and exhortations to deny ourselves, to actually see that other people exist 
and they have real issues, and they have real problems, and they have real difficulties. This is a call not to turn inwards in increased love for yourself. It's an, a call for you to turn outwards to help and love other people. The as yourself in this text is now not a permission for taking time to love yourself so that you can love others. No, it's a call to stop thinking solely of yourself. To stop focusing solely on your own good and invest some of those energies, invest those same energies into helping, loving, and focusing on the good of others. The scribes and the Pharisees reduced this command to the level of human ability by removing as yourself. They also did something else which we'll talk about in a second. Because they tended to leave out this, this, this extra little bit when they would teach about this law. But to love someone, a neighbor, as yourself, that would be very difficult, wouldn't it? That is very difficult, isn't it? We could say that would require a righteousness of a different quality, wouldn't it? The early Christians understood the central importance of the as yourself, which is why when you read through the New Testament, every time the commandment is spoken by a Christian, it's spoken in its entirety. You remember Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, for example. We read this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word or statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And Paul, when he writes to the Galatian believers, writes this in chapter 5, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James, the apostle, writing to his audience, wrote this in chapter 2. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And if that omission by the Pharisees, if that Play-Dohing of God's word wasn't enough, when the actual phrase, as yourself, was included in the command, they shifted the goalposts once again to a discussion on, well then, who exactly is my neighbor? And we see this exact interchange occur between Jesus and the lawyer in Luke chapter 10. Let me read it. Starting in verse 25. A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So there you go. He said, As yourself. Very good on this lawyer. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Now Jesus knew, and I assume the lawyer deep down also understood, that these two commandments are impossible. They're impossible in your own strength. The only way anyone could come to any other conclusion except that these are impossible is to justify themselves by limiting the scope of the command. And in this case, by limiting the definition of the word neighbor, as we see next in Luke chapter 10. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? And that's when Jesus goes into the the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? This is what the Pharisees were doing. And it's a good question. That is a good question. So who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? If I accept that I ought to love my neighbor as myself, if I see that that's the actual command given to me in Scripture, then it's a good question to ask. Who, therefore, who then is included in that group that I define as my neighbor? The scribes and Pharisees placed a whole number of limits on those who could 
meet up to that requirement or who could comprise neighbors. They first limited the definition of neighbor to those who were kind to them, respectful to them, generous with them. They also taught that no one should be considered a neighbor if they aren't worthy because of some deficiency in them. If there's something I don't like about them, if I don't think they're nice enough or generous enough or I don't think they're holy enough, that's not a neighbor. No one to them was a neighbor who wasn't a friend or at least on friendly terms. Love for neighbor became so narrowly defined by the Pharisees that the Gentiles weren't considered neighbors, people you didn't like weren't considered neighbors, Bad Jews, like tax collectors and sinners, weren't considered neighbors. So they very, 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 they narrowed the definition of neighbor very, 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 very much. Does that remind us of our own day? In our own day of passionate, deep-seated disagreement with others? in our own day of looking at people in the worst possible light, of feeling a hatred and an animosity and a hostility for those who disagree with our views of the world. We too can become, if we're not careful, very pharisaical in how we define neighbor. When the command was given, the intention and purpose of God was to call on us, God's people, to choose love over vengeance, but not only for our brothers. That's what Jesus referred to in verses 38 to 42. He's referring to not seeking personal vengeance against your brother, and now in our text this morning, it's amplified. Now he's talking about your enemies. Not only for our brother, but our love extends to every single human being. In the hands of the scribes, the Plato aficionados, the focus was not on the call to actively love and seek the best for everyone, regardless of the status of your friendship, but they instead focused on contrasting the neighbor with the enemy. One is to be loved, one is to be hated. That brings us to the second error, the error by addition. They omitted as yourself, and this time they added by addition that phrase in the second half of our verse, hate your enemy. This is exactly what our flesh tends to do, right, when it comes to God's word and when God's word is difficult. We omit the parts we don't like, and we add what we want to add in order to shape God's word to suit us. And in this case, hate your enemy was the addition. Now let me just say, hate your enemy is not ever commanded by God anywhere in the entirety of Scripture. Hate here means to intensely dislike, live in hostility and bitterness towards And most likely, they would have drawn this concept from a misreading of a number of scriptures in the Old Testament. Or, or because you know, right, when you have this idea of something that you want, a passion, a desire, we can so easily read that into God's word, can't we? They probably drew their permission for hostility towards their enemies from texts like Deuteronomy 25, for example. In Deuteronomy 25, we read this. When the Lord your God has given you, that's the Israelites entering into the promised land, rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And when Israel entered the promised land, we are told that cities that were defeated on their way into the promised land were devoted to destruction. Jericho is an example. In Joshua 6.21, we read that when Israel went into Jericho, they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. They took texts like these and said, well, see, these are permissions for us to hate our enemies. But these were not permissions to hate enemies but were instead the just judgments of God against those nations for their idolatry and sinfulness. Throughout the Old Testament, we do see at times God commanding Israel to go into some place and be the rod of God's judgment. And when Israel sinned, God used other nations, the Chaldeans, to be the rod of his judgment against them. God is just and equitable in his judgments. This is not to be applied on an individual level. 
But the rabbis assumed that because God in the past had used Israel to judge the Gentiles, that means the Gentiles are simply not neighbors and therefore enemies to be loved rather than people, enemies to be hated rather than people to be loved. And we learn from the lips of Jesus that's just not true. They also found permission for hatred of enemies in the Psalms. If you read the Psalms, you will see that there are a number of Psalms that are what we call imprecatory, where David seems to be praying against people. One example is in Psalm 39, 21, and 22, where he says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Your text might say, a perfect hatred. Now you've got to know that the Psalms of David were the Psalms of God's anointed king, a man concerned for the holiness, the reputation, and the honor of God, that God would be exalted among the peoples that he is tasked with leading. This is not a, a call for personal vengeance, but instead a prayer for the justice of God to reign in the land in his own day. And guess what? You and I can pray the same prayers. God, let your justice fall upon those who hate you. Rise up and have concern for your own name. And we rest in the fact that God's justice could be brought against the person or brought for the person in one of two ways. Either God in his justice brings that sinner to salvation and God justly deals with their sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And amen and amen for that, right? Or God's judgment will fall upon those who hate him in another way, a much more grievous way. It's one thing to pray for God's honor to be exalted by asking the Lord to rise up and himself deal with those who hate him in perfect justice and equity. It's another for us biased, unjust human beings to hate our enemies because we are not equitable and we are not fair. On an individual level, person to person, here is what the Old Testament commanded. For example, in Exodus chapter 23, verse 4, God commanded the people of Israel this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. The idea is you care for your enemy's livestock. You rescue them from the burdens that are strapped to them and you return those things to your enemy because you love them. You bring them back to the one who hates you. In other words, look out for the interests of your enemy. Is that not an impossible task? Do good to the one who hates you. Also, in Leviticus 19, we're told, you know, the Pharisees thought that the Gentiles were their enemies, but in Leviticus 19, we're told, when a stranger, stranger being a Gentile, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Enemies, Gentiles, the Lord commanded Israel to love them as they love themselves. We could go on, but I think the point is made, the Old Testament never commands one person to hate another person. And this addition to the command of love was, if you think about it, the logical outworking of Pharisees, the Pharisees' intense love for themselves. The practice of hating your enemy is always the outworking of a stress on self-love. The practice uh, is amplified in a culture like ours where we are pounded with the message over and over and over again. Love yourself. Think highly of yourself. Now, just, just think about it. Have you noticed that the more we are told to love ourselves, the more we don't see love in our culture, communities, and societies. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that more love for others doesn't result out of 
increased love for ourselves. But instead, what occurs and what sprouts out of that is more hatred and more animosity and more bitterness. These two things go hand in hand. Self-love and hatred for your enemies go hand in hand. The number of people that we start to consider our enemies, have you noticed how it keeps creeping up? It keeps rising And the reasons we consider people enemies and not our neighbors keeps rising and creeping up. They don't agree with my thoughts. They don't see the world like I do. They don't love what I love. And then they become our enemies. And as I've kept my finger on the pulse of culture, which I think that a lot of you guys are doing as well, have you watched as people become become enemies in their minds? I've watched... As people have gone from being considered morons by their enemies to being destructive to being punchable. If you watch that, enemies are now objects to be punched rather than people to be loved. And it all sprouts from self-love. And the good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and as long as a man is living for himself... He is sensitive, in a negative sense, watchful and jealous. He is envious and therefore always reacting to what other people do by acts of hatred, hostility, and revenge. May it never be for those of us who love Jesus. May we hear the words of Christ, the exhortations and commands of Christ, the correction of Christ. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. And your neighbor is any human being you come in contact with. Anyone. On an individual and personal level, we are never permitted to hate our enemy. You give that right up when you bow your knee to King Jesus. We are always called to imitate Jesus in every relationship. Jesus didn't take on flesh to come and save his friends. He didn't come to earth to redeem the worthy He had no friends on earth and no one was worthy. No, Jesus took on flesh and came to earth to save the wicked, to save the sinners, to save the stubborn, the the rebellious and the ungrateful, which, by the way, included every single one of us. Jesus, the great peacemaker. Jesus, the great lover of our souls. Jesus, who died for us while we were still sinners, tells us now in four statements what it means to love our enemy. And we'll do these quickly. The first we see in verse 44. I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? By definition, an enemy is someone you hate or someone you despise. An enemy, in this context, again, is someone you intensely dislike, someone you have feelings of bitterness and hostility towards, or it's someone that hates you, and then you've responded to them by hating them back. Our enemy might be the ones who are are, are referred to in the previous texts, the one who slaps us, the one who takes us to court, the one who commandeers us. What is the command of Jesus in in this text? You love those enemies. You love even those who hate you. You love those who contribute absolutely nothing to your life. You love those who benefit you in no way and you refrain from any vengeance, bitterness, and hostility. And instead, you endure and you bless them in return. Now, love is not a well-defined word in our culture. And so in this context, it's not some happy feeling that you, you, you feel for somebody else. Love is a verb here. It is an action. It means to, it's a call to express generosity and warmth and self-sacrifice for their good. This, li- this type of love is not contingent upon or dependent upon who that person is or what they have done for you or what they have done to you. It is based on the simple fact that they are a human being. If they are a human being... They are your neighbor. Now, this doesn't mean that you encourage people in their sin or you accept their sin. For some of us, we, like for, for a lot of people, we tend to see love as like this, uh, I'm just going to be accepting and soft and, and not really uh, speak the truth of Christ to them. 
That is not what love is. In fact, that's the very definition of hatred for another person. Hatred for their person, hatred for their soul. Because all you do when you encourage another person in their sin is speed them down the path to their eternal destruction. Can anything be more hateful than that? The Puritan Thomas Brooks equates this idea with a story that he, content, that he uh, if you read his works, he brings it up over and over and over again in every book. He tells a story of a man who held up a Christian that he hated. He held him up as a Christian because he hated him as an enemy. He held him up at knife point and he said, you renounce Christ or I'll kill you. And the man, terrified, renounced Christ to save his own life, and the criminal then stabbed and killed the man anyway, walking away content and happy with the knowledge that he killed both the man's physical body and his soul. That's exactly what encouraging people in their sin is. A killing of their soul, a killing of their body. No, love is seeking the best from your heart for another It's blessing them with good. It's helping them onto the narrow path, even if they continually reject that path. Even if they reject that path and then slap you in the face. It's not wishing for another's hurt. It's it's avoiding any contributions to their hurt. It's not responding in vengeance or bitterness, but instead doing good to them and for them. You remember in 1 Corinthians 13, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love is always compassionate, always seeking reconciliation and blessing, never retribution. Now, if you're a Jew in this day, you had most likely never heard anyone tell you that you were called to love your enemy. It just was not something anyone taught. They'd probably never heard this command ever. You're telling me to love an enemy? This is Jesus correcting the misinterpretations of the rabbis and bringing his intentions, his original commands, back into focus. Instead of getting caught up in all of the fleshly arguments about who's my neighbor, Jesus said, learn to see all people, every single one of them, as your neighbor to love and love them. If you've gotten to the point where you see any other human being as anything other than a neighbor to love, you are sinning and sinning wickedly. See the people in this world as your mission field to love and to preach and to proclaim the gospel to, not as some field of minds or obstacles that you need to avoid and or overcome. If you get to that place, you are a Pharisee and disobedient to the command of the Lord here. Be a person whose reputation, when everyone sees you, when, everyone, when your name is brought up in a conversation, they say, that person is one who loves. That person is actively good and kind and loving to people in misery, to people in need. They are actively good, kind, and loving to those on the end of their, other end of their political spectrum. They're good, kind, and loving to anyone who is on the opposite end of the mask spectrum. They're good, kind, and loving to anyone that they don't like, anyone who's harmed them, anyone who's insulted them. They are simply good, kind, and loving to everyone. Second, Jesus said, not only do you love your enemies, but you pray for those who persecute you. You see that in verse 44. Those who persecute you, Persecute those who cause you to suffer, those who actually mistreat you physically or emotionally, those who harass you or mistreat you. That's what the word persecute here means. Now, does this not go against every impulse of our flesh? This is not some general prayer for their good so that we can feel good about ourselves, right? You ever done that? I don't want to forgive that person, so I'm just going to kind of just say, you know, Lord, I pray for their general good. No, this, what is included in such prayers is, Lord, help me to love my neighbor as myself. Help me to forgive them of the wicked deeds they've done against me. Help me, if I've done wicked things against them, to go and seek their forgiveness. And in this way, you act like your Savior, 
who when was, he was hanging and fastened to the cross as passerbys went insulting him and harassing him said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And upon his resurrection, Jesus sent the disciples to proclaim the gospel to those very people first. Third, reveal your adoption. First, love your enemies. Second, pray for those who persecute you. Third, reveal your adoption or sonship. You see that in verse 45 and forward. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, loving your enemy does not save you, but it does reveal a true salvation has occurred in you. The great reformer John Calvin saw love for neighbor as so central to the Christian life that he would say this, everyone who neglects this is struck out of the number of the children of God. Meaning, they reveal a stony and unchanged heart and therefore reveal that they lack a true salvation. Because the one who grasps the love of Christ that has been showered on them will, as a result, love those around them, love everyone around them, and reveal that they are true children of God. No one can claim to be a child of God who does not love their neighbor. Whether it's someone who is easy to love or someone who is easy to hate, we know both, don't we? This is a mark of true adoption, that we love even the evil, that we love even the wicked, we love even the ungrateful, True salvation, the life of the Spirit in our souls, corrects the wicked tendency in us to hate other human beings. Even God himself makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. You see that? He makes his son. It's very, very specific. It's his son that he makes rise on the evil and the good. You see, God reveals his general love for humanity in such common blessings. The son belongs to God, doesn't it? He could withhold it if he wanted to. The rising of the sun and the falling of the rain, they're not chance occurrences. These are blessings given to to humanity from the Lord. They are proofs of his goodness, presentations of his bounty, and he gives these gifts to all without discrimination. He gives them to the evil and the unjust as well as the good and just. That God in this life does good to those who hate him that he doesn't withhold his blessings from those who thumb their noses at him is an example for us to imitate. The Lord gives these blessings to all regardless of whether we deserve them or not. And so we reveal our status as children of God by imitating our Heavenly Father and showing love to everyone whether they deserve love or not. Fourth, you love differently than the world. Love differently than the world. See verse 46 and forward. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. Now you remember, right? The scribes and the Pharisees assumed that their righteousness was of a greater quality than everyone else's. And Jesus here utterly pulverizes all of their assumptions. The love you Pharisees reveal in your teaching, that love where you love your neighbor who is narrowly defined and you hate your enemies, guess what? It's no different from the tax collectors and the Gentiles that you presume to be more holy than. Their supposed superiority, the vaunted righteousness of the Pharisees, was achievable even to the tax collector and the Gentile. In other words, Jesus looked squarely at the self-righteous Pharisees and declared, you are not special. You are not more righteous than anyone else. You act just like everyone else. You are not nearly as distinct as you think you are. If you love those who love you back, do you expect some sort of reward for that? Pharisees, do you want a cookie? Do you ex- this is easy. Do you expect rewards for living like those that you consider to be the worst of people? 
Tax collectors love those who love them. Gentiles are capable of greeting only their brothers. So what are, more are you doing than they are? What makes you think that you are more righteous than they when you simply imitate sinners and show that you're not any better off than they are? You're not doing anything exceptional, Pharisees. You're not doing anything qualitatively different than your Gentile enemy and your tax-collecting annoyance. And this is a good question for us to ask ourselves, isn't it? Are you truly a follower of Christ? Are you truly one in whom the Holy Spirit lives? And the question that Jesus asked here applies to us as well. What more are you doing than others? How is your life qualitatively different from that of the worldly? Is your character greater? Is your life characterized by loving others as you love yourself? Are you more generous? Are you more caring? Are you more forgiving? Are you more holy? Would those around you, if someone went to them and asked about you, say, well, there's definitely something different about them? They're just so gracious. They're just so loving. They're just so full of good works. Or would they say, it's nothing really different. It's a good question for you to wrestle with this week. And all of these lead in closing to the final statement in our text this morning. The demand of the Lord that we be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you're anything like me, you know that this is just not possible in your own strength. However, we must not fall into the pharisaical trap of addressing this problem by turning God's word into Play-Doh that we can shape and mold as we see fit. Do not fall into the trap of lessening or easing up on the standard of perfection that is revealed and required by the Lord in Scripture. Instead, let the standard of God perform its function. Let it lead you to realize you are a sinner. Let it lead me to realize that I am a sinner that falls short of this standard. And then turn to Jesus in faith. And when we turn to Jesus in true faith and belief, our sins are forgiven, his righteousness is applied to us, and this is how we attain the perfection that is required by our Father. We can't do it. You can't do it. You can't achieve it. I can't achieve it. We can't work for it. It must be given to us as a gift, and it is given to everyone who believes, who truly believes in Jesus Christ. And when you truly believe the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, the Holy Spirit then shifts you and changes you and causes you to press on to holiness, to strive for holiness in heart, to strive for holiness in mind, in love, in marriage, in words. So the question I leave you with is, are you a child of the King this morning? Do you love your enemies? Do you pray for those who persecute you? Do you reveal your sonship? Do you live differently than the world? Father, we thank you and we praise you and we honor you. We praise you that your word reveals to us your perfect, holy, righteous, wonderful standard. And Lord, while it is not natural to us to think of ourselves in terms like wretched sinner, hopeless, unable to achieve righteousness, I pray that you would let the work, the law, your law, reveal to us that that is truly the case and lead us to the greatest gift available anywhere in all of creation. Salvation by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us this, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live a life that is qualitatively different, to live a life where we love our enemies, where we withhold vengeance and bless the other people, 
where we don't hold on to bitterness, where we fight for our marriages, where we avoid lust and sexual temptations and in the power of your spirit, let us be qualitatively different and let us submit ourselves to your word because we know that in your word is life and life to the full. And we pray this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.